Hello, this is a Brighton Parkcast, and I'm your host, James LaPlane. On today's episode, we'll talk about the set of responsibilities that are unique to the Chief Executive Officer and share insights that will help prepare a CEO for operating at scale no matter the size of their current business. Topics will include coachability, sustainable high performance, culture, communication, to name a few. Now let's meet our special guest. Our guest today is Mike Gregoire. Mike brings a wide range of experience, both from his time serving in CEO roles, from startups to companies valued at over $19 billion, and from his ongoing practice of advising current CEOs. Mike Gregoire is partner and co-founder of Brighton Park Capital, a growth equity firm based in Connecticut. Mike was previously the chairman and CEO of CA Technologies, which he sold to Broadcom in 2018. Prior to that, Mike was chairman and CEO of Taleo, a talent management platform that he took public and then subsequently sold to Oracle. Over the past several years, Mike has been advising CEOs in both his capacity at Brighton Park Capital and as a board member for brands such as AMD, ADP, Smartsheet, and the conversational AI platform Paradox, among others. From his experiences, Mike has built a top 10 list of issues that CEOs need to address, which we will be covering today. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Great to meet with you, James. Likewise. So from your roles leading companies from startups to large enterprise companies, do you see some commonality in the challenges that uh, today's CEOs face? Yeah, I think, you know, across the board, when you're the CEO, you have to understand that the chief stands for something. You are the chief decision maker. I think a lot of early CEOs don't realize the both the power of their voice coupled with the responsibility that comes with it. And what I try to tell CEOs, and just to keep it really simple, is nobody cares. (laughs) I think that the sooner you realize that you are 100% responsible for the outcomes of your company, regardless of what that is, financial performance, the way your company is perceived in the market, the attrition rate you have in your company, are you a great place to work or not? Nobody really wants to hear about it's a bad economy or we can't afford to pay, you know, what is the commensurate rate going for each job code, nobody cares. You have to care. You have to lead. You own that responsibility. Now, to the extent that you can get other people to help you and you can get advice from other people, I think you have a higher probability of success. But the fundamental principle I always tell somebody when they get that first chief executive role is nobody cares. (laughs) I think it's great advice and probably one that's hard for CEOs to, to really internalize. Well, it, it's a different job. At, at the end of the day, it's kind of a perverse set of structure with especially American CEOs. If you go to Europe, they have usually supervisory boards, and then they have the executive board, which makes things a little bit different. You have more cooks in the kitchen, for sure, and that accountability gets a little bit diluted. But in the U.S., you have the CEO that sits in the middle of investors, customers, board members, and employees. And they are the fundamental decision maker for each one of those constituencies. And what I found is it's impossible to make everybody happy. But your job is to make sure that everybody understands. And to the extent that you are thoughtful, use a process of pure objectivity when you can. Be very clear when something's your opinion and when something's fact. And demonstrate a process that walks around problems 360 degrees so you take each constituency into account, but then you have to make a decision. If you fail to decide, you still have made a choice, which means you're going to be back in the same situation that you were. We're not making everybody happy, but they won't understand. And in my opinion, the CEOs that get on the wrong side of whether they're still CEO or not are ones that don't help people understand their thinking. Yeah, that's really interesting. So that's a great backdrop for this list of 10 categories that you put together related to the challenges that CEOs ultimately face. So let's dive into the first one of these, which interestingly enough is around talent. I I assume that that was on purpose that you began with talent. All of your IP walks out the door every day. (laughs) If you're a software company or a tech company, if you're a professional services company, it's even, it's even more profound because that IP actually does walk out the door every single day. At least if they've written software, you have you know some historical IP that you can leverage. Whether it works in the future or not, that's always to be determined. But I think that at the, at the top of the pyramid, the CEO sets the tone for the kind of talent they're trying to attract, how they treat people, 
and how they treat people in good times, how they treat people in less good times. And the process that a CEO goes through to evaluate talent coming into the company and talent in the company matters greatly. If you're one of those CEOs that, you know, kind of goes off the last person that walked out of your office, people pick up on that. And then what you'll see is a line up in front of your <laughs> office and everybody's trying to be the last person in your office. That's not being a leader. That's being an appeaser. And you're not the chief appeasement officer, you're the chief executive officer, which means you have to collect the best people and the best people have to be the best team. I always find sometimes a little odd with boards. They always look for central casting players and they don't understand how that person works in the confines of a team. Your job as a CEO is to put the best team in the field, not the best collection of A players. I've seen many, many superstar teams that are great collections on paper of unbelievable executives, but they don't work well together. Yeah. And then I've seen other teams, when you look at the, the roster and you know, perhaps their pedigree, how can this company be so good? And they're good because they work well together. That's your job, is to get people to work well together and also understand that you know, teams that work well together today may not work well together in a year from now. You know, people change, circumstances change, customers change, technology changes. Your job as a CEO is to try to understand those changes and constantly challenge yourself. Am I putting the best team on the field all day, every day? It's a great uh, point about team structure, both as it stands now and how it needs to change in the future. That really begins with a good recruiting process, and you've been fairly adamant about how the CEO needs to own that recruiting process. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, there's a whole bunch to unpack there, and most of it is from making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> you know, most of the time, you're probably going to hire a search yep. firm, and that search firm will most likely want to do the reference checks for you, and I find that to be not helpful. They get confirmation bias. They find somebody that they really like and they really think is going to work yep. well. And that candidate gives them a handful of references. And, of course, the references that you get from the search firm or the references that you get from the candidate are going to be confirmation bias. This person is going to be a good fit. This person's done really well. What I find works best for me and other CEOs where we've had this conversation is, you know, get in those blind references. And it's not about the pedigree of the person, where they've worked, the school they went to. It really is what did they right. do. And if you can talk to former employees, uh, former managers or leaders of that employee, and really understand what did they do to help that organization go forward, I find that you can really avoid some mishires. And more importantly, you can ask a really simple question. What do I have to do as CEO to make this person successful? Right. You'd be surprised how much people open up about that particular question because at the end of the day, most people want others to be successful. And they probably haven't been asked that question. And just hitting them with that question gives them an opportunity to really open-ended answer you know, what they really think of this person. And I think that I've learned a ton about how to best manage people uh, that I'm bringing on to the team by asking that, that very same question. That makes a lot of sense. So once you've got the right team assembled, right, you've been through that, that recruiting process, you've done your reference checks, you know, why is it so hard for CEOs to acknowledge that the landscape has shifted and maybe that person who has amazing talent, that talent is now, you know, something else is needed, something else different is needed uh, in the moment? I think humans in general don't like chaos. <laughs> for sure. Um, I think we try to find equilibrium. And, you know, it's kind of like the frog in the, in the boiling water. You know, you keep turning it up two or three degrees and it's 105 degrees and the frog's still swimming around having a nice bath. You know, you drop the frog into the 105 degree water, not so good for the frog. I think that's what happens with CEOs. Like, it, the job is so difficult. It's a 724 job. It's the tyranny of the immediate. You try to be strategic. You try to square off time to really think about the future. And something happens at a customer that just takes you off your game that day. You have another employee issue that might get you off your game. A competitor makes a big announcement. 
the stock goes down, you know, three or four percent, you have no idea why. And just so happens that a big mutual fund decided that they wanted to sell. They don't have to give you any kind of a warning. These are all the things that happen all day, every day with a CEO. When you're looking at an employee that's struggling and you're not quite sure if they're the best player to work with this team going forward, you kind of just push it off because it's going to be chaotic. I mean, I'm going to have to explain this to the street. You know, I might have to file an AK. I'm going to have to explain this to all the employees. You know, where is this? What if this person goes to one of my competitors? You have all these things going on in your head. But the most important thing that you should be asking yourself is, am I doing right by this employee, putting them in a job where they can't be successful? And am I doing the right thing for our company by having somebody that is not fully engaged or cannot be fully engaged or can't be fully competent in the full role as the role has evolved? And I think if you're honest with yourself and answer those two questions, it'll give you the courage to act. It's great advice and such a simple set of questions that I think you have to step back a little bit from the moment to to really be able to truthfully answer. One of the things I've, I've found over the years is you can't make people do things that they don't want to do over a long period of time, and you can't make people do things that they can't do over a long period of time. Anybody can suck it up for a short period of time, but... Your job is the long-term, sustainable growth of the company. And counting on heroics from an employee that just doesn't have the desire or the capability, eventually someone's going to be having a conversation about you. Are you the right person to be leading? Because these are fundamental decisions that only the CEO can make. And when a board of directors has to walk in and start making those decisions on behalf of the CEO... Make no mistake about it. They're meeting in private, talking about you. Well, that's great. Uh, another transition here. You know, another group that has to be managed from a talent aspect is that those board positions themselves. So, so let's start a little bit with alignment. You, you've said that the CEO's job is to strike harmony between the board and the management team. Can you expand a bit on that idea? It's like most things. Everything has a hierarchy, but it works well when there is no hierarchy. I mean, it's, the hierarchy is implicit, but when everybody is marching to the same drum, staying in their swim lane, doing what they need to do to make the company successful, it works really well. Now, in order to do that, it really is the CEO's job to drive the strategy of the company and get the buy-in and the advice of the board, and then also the collaboration and the operational acumen of the management team that, that has to execute it. And what I find is... If you can't get both of those groups to really buy in to the strategy uh, of what the company is going to do, you're going to be, it's going to be very difficult to get an operating budget in place that everyone's okay with because there's trade-offs you make. You know, when I was at the, a smaller company like a, like a Taleo, I always said, oh, my God, I never have enough money to do what I want to do. I mean, this is a $400 million a year, $2 billion market cap right. company. And then you go to a company like CA, you know, $5 billion, $20 billion market cap. And you know what? I never had same enough problem. <laughs> money and people to do. Yeah, it's the same yeah. problem, right? So you're constantly making these trade-offs. And people get amnesia. Right. And to the extent that you have a rolling three-year strategy that is truly a strategy that people have bought into and that you're reflecting on it every year, I think that that brings the harmony between the two groups and it gives permission to fail. Like, if your strategy is flawless and you never have any hiccups, I can bet you are, you don't have a bold strategy of a very conservative strategy. Now, if you're building the space shuttle, yeah, you're going to want a conservative strategy. If you're building enterprise software and you've got five tier one competitors in your cohort, yeah, you better be pushing the envelope of delighting customers better than your competition. In order to push that envelope, you're probably going to have to take a little bit more risk. You've said that the strategy session with the board and the management team is maybe one of those areas where it's not okay to disagree, right, to agree to disagree. What does that mean, that phrase to you? Yeah, I find that to be a cop-out. You know, when someone says, well, we'll just agree to disagree, and then you come to the next board meeting and it says, well, I told you so. <laughs> and then your hearing of it is, we agreed to disagree, but we're going forward with the strategy. And their view is, I don't agree, and we shouldn't go the, do this strategy, and I'm going to be a thorn in your side 
for the next three quarters as as my thesis starts to play out. Or even worse, you know, I'm going to prove that I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm not going to help you. And so I find that you really have to get people to agree. They don't have to like it, but they have to agree and they have to commit. It makes a lot of sense. Do you have any advice on how CEOs can respond to a board that wants to go in a different direction? You got to hope that you never get to that spot. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're that far off, um, you're probably best to resign and uh, go, do something, go do something else. On the margin, everyone's going to have slightly different opinions, but if, if there's fundamental changes in strategy that the CEO um, doesn't agree with the board on, like every company has a discussion on growth versus profitability. You got to come to a conclusion on that. Um, don't now. What I find, especially with some of these smaller companies and some of the less experienced board members I've worked with that really don't have an operational background, they want it both. They want high growth and more profitability. They work against each other. You just got to pick the right sweet spot. And the other thing too is, a lot of companies can't handle the investment and this and the strain it puts on the company to go hire so many people and drive for that growth. It looks great on a spreadsheet. You know, if I multiply million dollar quota times 10 people, that means I should have, and they get at 80%, I should have $8 million of sales. Well, if you have no sales enablement and you do some bad hiring and you haven't thought through territory management and haven't thought through your comp structure, you know, you've just wasted a whole year of trying to get growth and you probably would have been better off to hire four or five salespeople instead of eight or ten and built those enabling functions so that next year you can hire double that and then double that after you know the the following year that makes sense and you know another topic that i think is often central to board discussions is around cash flow and cash management you mentioned growth and profitability trade-off which i think we'll come back to in a second so there are a lot of possibilities, right, for CEOs to consider about how best to apply how they use cash and how they use debt, share buybacks, capital raises, acquisitions, for example. Um, how does a CEO strike that balance you know, with so many competing interests? That's a great question. And I think there's really a couple different ways of looking at it. Public companies are a little bit more specific. At the end of the day, if you're a public company CEO, you're going to have to dedicate a good portion of your time to the whole notion of capital management. Nobody that is a shareholder likes to get diluted. If you keep too much money on your balance sheet, you're going to have an activist um, getting into your stock, and they're going to say, hey, I'm going to be a better steward of that cash and capital than you. So you want to find the right balance between you know, dividends, share buybacks, acquisitions, and how much capital you need to spend for organic growth. Unfortunately, the way capital markets work, the place that a CEO CEO would like to spend the most is on organic Mm -hmm. growth. Unfortunately, it's the place that investors like it the least. And what they want is share buybacks, and they want um, dividend payments or well-thought-out acquisitions. So in a private company, the area that I see a CEO really having to pay attention to with respect to capital allocation, it's really on three things. Number one, how much should I spend on sales? How much should I spend on R&D? And then the third thing is, and I try to avoid this as much as I possibly can, is how much to spend on debt. I have a bias towards this. I am not a financial engineer. I'm a software engineer. And what I find with a lot of investors, they don't really understand software engineering, but they really do understand financial engineering. And what happens is you end up with a P&L and a balance sheet that makes it really difficult to operate the company. I mean, I understand how investors make money. Sometimes you want to borrow a bunch of money and then pay yourself out a nice dividend, and then you're basically, you know, own the same amount of the company and you're dealing with the house money because you paid yourself back. I get all that. But those payments, instead of dividends, those payments are in the form of interest payments. They are taking away from money that you could be spending on R&D and software, uh, software engineering as well as sales. So there's no free lunch here. 
I think that if everybody understands, you know, the impact of these decisions and what it does to the long-term future of the company, I think that's great. But when you don't have the full understanding of where that capital is going, what the long-term effects of that are, I think that's when it becomes problematic. I recently read that it's getting harder for SaaS companies in particular to beat the rule of 40, where you, know, you, you basically add growth rate plus uh, profit uh, percentage, a profit margin percentage, uh, and try to be above 40%. Do you have an opinion on how useful metrics like that turn out to be? It's a metric, and it's an important metric, but it is a metric. Um, some years, you're going to have a disproportionate amount of spend on R&D. You have new product coming to market, and you're going to have to spend a lot more money on marketing of that product because people don't know what it is. You're going to try to price that product, but you really don't have evidence of how elastic that pricing is in the marketplace, so you might have charged too much, therefore you don't sell enough might not charge enough, sell a lot of it, but you lose money with every sale you have. These are the things that happen in software companies. So I think that rule of 40 is a metric you should look at. It's an important metric, but you have to do it in the context of what's going on in the company. Now, another example is you just spent a ton of money on R&D. And unfortunately, R&D leaders, they don't like to see their budgets go down every year. But if that R&D leader doesn't have the next new skew that has been through the rigor of a proper business case, yeah, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be spending the same amount of money on R&D in perpetuity. Um, it's time to harvest. So when you take a look at bigger companies, like CA, for example, I would have, and this is, the par- this is part of having a great team, we had multiple divisional leaders, and in some years, uh, divisions got a great idea, and we green-lighted uh, a new SKU that they're going to go build, and they would get a disproportionate amount of the R&D budget, which means another part of the business that has gone through that already, they're in harvest mode, which means they got to get their products sold, and we're not going to go you know, bloat and expand that product. We're going to let those engineers go work on the net new thing. And if you can get that kind of collaboration in your company, you get this equilibrium where you're spending relatively the same amount of R&D dollars, but those dollars are going to SKUs that need the money, and there's a tangible business case of why they should have it. Now, if you're building out a new SKU, you probably don't need the same salespeople. So you might spend more on sales and marketing for one product and less on R&D. In another product, you might be spending more on R&D unless on sales and marketing. And to the extent that the whole company gets to rule of 40, that's great. But you shouldn't handcuff small companies to any one particular metric because they're going through an evolution themselves. Yeah, that's a really great point because maybe instead of looking at the whole company all the time, you should look at those verticals or products to see where they are in their life cycle to help gauge how much R&D budget, for example, to spend on it. Yeah, I mean, sales is a perfect example. Like, if you're an enterprise salesperson... It's going to take six months before you're really ready to carry a full quota and, and expect to get full quota productivity. That's going to have a pretty profound impact on the, on the magic number, and it's going to have a pretty profound impact on your Rule of 40 performance. But if you're taking a look at that cohort that you hired, how well has that cohort performed after the six months? And then you'll know... And anybody who's doing investing is going to go look at those types of things. And so if a company is shy of Rule of 40 and you can see that they've been hiring and their hiring has been successful, you're going to feel much, much more comfortable about investing in that company. If you're looking at that company and they're churning customers and they're hiring a lot of people and the people are churning, um, yeah, the growth might look great, but the underlying economics of what makes that company run are not so great and that's when you're probably going to, want to shy away from. Yeah, that's the danger, right, of, of a single metric could mask some of that behavior. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, you, you've said that acquisitions are tough, and I think acquisitions, R&D, all these things are opportunity costs that have to be weighed against each other. You know, building products from scratch sometimes is a bit harder. How do you go into making a buy versus build decision? You know, in a perfect world, I'd <laughs> want to build everything myself. For sure. That's um, your software engineering background, right? But the fact of the matter is you have one thing working against you, and that's time. Yep. In order to build 
like if you, we did a, a, a pretty significant calculation on this when it, both at Taleo and at, at CA we're very data. I mean, I, I like to come from a, a data-driven, you know, framework. Yeah. And so what I found in both companies, if we build a product from scratch and that product is successful, like a big if, it's about an 80% IRR. If I buy a company, um, we try to hold ourselves to a private equity slash VC IRR, like 20%, between 20 and 25%. We would green light acquisitions that had, you know, a 20 to 25% IRR. Now, the difference in risk of buying versus building, um, building's just way more risky. Yep. Um, because in order to build anything of substance and get a, you know, a V1 product out or a minimal viable product out, it's 18 months. Right. And then you have to do the hard work of preparing that product for enterprise consumption. That takes another year. Yeah. So whatever idea you had, it almost is two and a half to three years before it hits mainstream. Yep. And if you can do that and your competitors don't trump you, um, that's, that's a great spot to be. So that ratio is about a four to one in terms of risk to reward, right? It can be, and but think about the other way around. And if you can find, if you've got a sales force and a go-to-market engine that is actually really working well, and you've got great customer relationships, and you can buy something and put that in the hand of your distribution engine, like tomorrow, you you have three years of selling and collecting revenue. Um, it's kind of hard to beat when you when you can make that work. And I can tell you, I, I had a, I had an opportunity um, to buy SailPoint, and uh, I remember talking to the product manager of that group, and he said, "No, I can build it in a year." I said, "I don't think you can." And I really thought SailPoint was an interesting company, and he kept on pushing back and saying, "Well, it's built on .NET architecture." And we were, you know, once again a bit, you know, a little bit bigoted. We were very much a, a Unix LAMP stack. Yep. And you know, it was going to be a little bit. We never really had anything .NET in our in our portfolio. It'd be the first time in doing that. I got talked out of buying that company. You know, three years later, he still did not have a product <laughs> that can compete with Salesforce. Uh, sorry, SailPoint. And SailPoint went on to be a great company, and they abstracted all the .NET architecture. And um, you know, big mistake. So, I got scars of <laughs> of on both sides of the equation: green lighting development, yeah. and uh, also you can get hit, you know, hurt very badly um, when you buy something that doesn't work out either. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's all it's all very risky. It's always very dangerous, and I think it's probably one of the reasons most CEOs are no longer CEOs. They do a bad acquisition. So. I always approach them with an awful lot of caution and an awful lot of care because it, <laughs> it's mortal. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I think in many ways what you're saying is uh, the culture of the company can kind of almost, you know, presage uh, how willing people are to make an acquisition if if they're let's say um, review process is about how much you ship to market yourself and it's a build culture, an acquisition is going to be frowned at, right? I think so. I also think it's a business decision, yep. and um, there's a difference between great engineers and great business people. Yeah, and if you can be a great business person and a great engineer, I think that you end up, you know, in the upper parthenon of, of great CEOs. Um, you just got to be willing to go do the work to understand where the risk is and where's the highest probability of success. Well, managing your emotions through an acquisition is a big challenge. Uh, that topic leads us well into the next on your list, which is uh, around objectivity. Um, maybe we could start a little bit with the other side of that coin, which is what happens if you're a target for acquisition and you're the CEO of that uh, of that company? Uh, you know, value is always a big part of that discussion. So, what's the best way for the CEO to make sure that value stays high or is increasing during that process? You know, I start off giving CEOs the following advice. Great companies are bought, they're not sold. And so the first thing that I encourage a CEO to do is don't try to put your company for sale. 
um, in your body language, the way you behave, um, the way you interact. Now, if your board tells you to go sell this company, I mean, you got your marching orders, pop off a salute and go do your very best job to do that. But that's not usually what happens. Usually what happens is you're going to get an inbound when someone might be interested. You have no idea whether they're credible buyers or not. You have no idea if they're just checking out what else is going on in the in the industry. They might just be benchmarking against their own company or a company that another company that they're interested in that's in your space. Right. Um, so it, it's intentions matter here. So the first thing I like to advise CEOs is go build a great company and. At the end of the day, it's not necessarily your call if you sell it or not. That's going to be done by the board. Yep. Your job is to build a great company. Now, should someone express interest, I think the very first thing you do is call your chairman or lead independent director, and you want to be on record because you don't want to have your finger on the scale whether you should buy or sell a company. You want gotcha. to be completely transparent because there's going to be a point in time when you're going to be asked to leave those discussions because you're not objective. Does the acquirer want you to stay? And if the acquirer wants you to stay, um, they're going to try to make it economically, you know, attractive for you to do that, which might not be in the best interest of shareholders. Um, you want to make sure that you're above board on all those discussions and never go to any of these meetings by yourself. You want to have either your GC with you, your CFO, your head of, of business development, and then keep your board um, appraised of all discussions. Like write a memo after every meeting, you know, get someone else to review it, and just be above board on all those transactions. It is very emotional. It is fraught with risk. And lastly, don't take your eye off the day job. You know, if, let's say you go down, you know, a six-month process and you're priding yourself that you're involved in every part of the decision, every meeting, I can guarantee you you're going to miss quarters. Yeah. And if the transaction doesn't happen, let's go back to the first thing we talked about. Nobody cares. Right. <laughs> so you need to make sure that you're keeping the franchise moving forward all day, every day. And then secondly, leaks happen. And as soon as it, it, it looks disingenuous for a CEO to be saying, you know, we're great, we're here for the long term, and then you sell the company or you go through a process where, you know, the, the company is being sold. Yep. That's hard on staff. Yeah. Um, and in order for you to keep your own integrity in place, they have to truly believe that you're trying to build a great company, and they have to truly believe that it's you know, the fact that you that we have built a great company makes us attractive to others, and we should look upon that as a compliment. And whether the transaction goes forward or doesn't go forward, um, you woke up every single day trying to build a great company. If your employees think that you're just a transaction hound and you're here right. to, you know, flip the company, you're going to have B-level players that are not committed. And I think it's hard to build greatness if you've got that kind of culture. I love that framing uh, to say that the reason that you're getting inbound queries at all is because you've built something of value that others are taking interest in. What a great way to show context of how people's day-to-day -day work you know, relates to the company's success itself. I, I think that's a wonderful way to think about it. Yeah, I think most people want to be committed to something bigger than themselves. They want to work on a team. You know, that kind of gets into some of the other things we talk about, like the whole concept of work from home and how do you build culture. I think... The more connection points and the more shared vision that you have, the us-against-them uh, mentality, uh, I think that that builds great companies, and it also builds great relationships with customers. Yeah. Customers want to know that they bought their software from you. Right. Not some, you know, they're going to have to get warm to whoever the acquirer is, and to the extent that, that they think that you're just up for sale... I can guarantee you that your sales performance is going to go down. Yeah, that's also a really great point. Well, when you think about objectivity from a CEO standpoint, you know, obviously every one of us has some kind of agenda. That doesn't mean it's bad. Uh, but how important is clarity from a CEO about the agenda that they're on? I think it, it leads to a lot of efficiencies. I think if you're a CEO and someone walks in your office, has a discussion with you, and then walks out of the office and doesn't really understand what was discussed, 
I think you're probably going to not be CEO for too long. <laughs> I think when someone comes in your office and they leave your office, they should know exactly what you think on a particular topic. And by the way, it's legitimate for a CEO to say, I haven't thought about that enough. Right. I'm not ready to disclose where I come down on that particular issue. To leave somebody in limbo, I think, drives massive inefficiencies. There's a, there's a saying I, I think it's, I don't know why it gets picked up on me. I'm sure I'm not the first person to say it, but, you know, a whisper from the top is a scream from the bottom. And, you know, silence from the top is a scream at the bottom as well. So if there is something you feel strongly about or you've, you've opined on and you don't want to deal with an employee that has a different point of view, uh, especially someone that you truly respect, letting them walk out of your office where they think you've softened but you haven't, that's going to cause a pretty big ripple effect in the organization, and you're best off to just say, "Hey, look, it. I know you don't. Un- I, I know you don't agree with this. I've heard your point of view. When I take a look at it from my job, of the long-term growth of this company and success of this company, I think the risk-reward scenarios are not sufficient to do this, that, or, or the other thing. And I'm making the call to go down this path. Now you own it, by the way. Yeah. And most employees." They got their little black book that keeping track of every decision that you make. <laughs> There's always a tally, and, right? Yeah, you, you, and you need to make sure that that ledger has better decisions than, than bad decisions. Yeah. And that's where respect comes from. Like, I mean, the more good decisions that you have, I think you shouldn't abuse that, but I think you're going to get a little bit more appreciation from your staff. And, and quite frankly, they, they can't see everything you see. One of the things I found, you know, I, I get asked the question a lot, you know, what are the things you've, you've learned from going from being an operator and a CEO of a big company to being an investor? And it's information. Yeah. Like, I mean, the CEO of a, of a large company like a Microsoft, a, you know, a VMware, you know, a Broadcom, a CA, the amount of high-quality information that comes across the CEO's desk is incredible. And... When you leave that infrastructure, you don't have the same level of information. But your employees don't have that as well. Right. And so to the extent that you can help them understand that you're being objective here and you're not using executive fiat and it's not just your opinion, um, you've thought deeply about it, I think you get people to come and follow you. If you are capricious, if you are inconsistent, if you lack objectivity, if you don't read the materials that people give you, I think you go into a different category as CEO. Yeah, it's amazing. I think people have uh, a natural superpower to pick up on inconsistency, right? Like we're just wired to, to recognize when it happens. And if that manifests in a CEO, boy, that's, that sends ripple or ripples throughout the company. It's kind of like what we talked about as why we don't fire people, why do CEOs not fire people? Because you're constantly trying to get out of chaos, right? If you're inconsistent... You know, people are trying to get the vibe from you of what is good. And if you've said, this is good, and they do that, and all of a sudden they get slapped on the wrist, they know this is bad, they're going like, oh my goodness, like this person's impossible to work for. You know, you need to be consistent. And if you're the CEO that's rewriting history on your decisions, that also frustrates employees because they actually do pay attention to pretty much everything you do yeah and you want to hold yourself to the highest possible standard well let me ask you a bit more about that in particular ceos often have to make decisions without all the desired data they wish they'd have how does a ceo balance that internal and maybe even public image when the data later shows that they should have made a different choice that always comes down to transparency as ceo if you have a great team i can guarantee you you are only making decisions where you're forced into a decision on a time frame you don't want with inconsistent information. The CEO gets all the hard choices then, right? Well, I mean, you are probably not building a great team if the data to make a decision is readily available. Maybe you're, maybe you, you know, you shouldn't use this word, but, you know, a control freak or over micromanager. Everybody gets micromanaged. It just depends on where you draw the line. And the most successful CEOs draw that line as far away from the operating decision as possible because they trust the people to make the decision. And that goes back to how we started the conversation as well as on talent. You know, that does matter. Now, when you're making these decisions, 
because failing to make a decision is also making a decision. Absolutely. And you're not going to get all of them right. Own up to it. People will respect that humbleness. And secondly, they will learn from it. You know, Mike made this call, didn't work out. He owned up. He talked about what he learned about it. And we can all learn from this experience. Um, you're going to get, you know, a fair bit of, of followership in doing that. Now, if you're the guy that's always making mistakes, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work either. You know, you get you get to make a you get to make a couple a year, and they can't be you know whoppers. Yeah. But to the extent that you're a learning person and you're in a learning organization, and that you're trying to grow, and which means you're going to be there's going to be some element of risk in all decision making that's done. I, I think that you're training everybody that this is okay. You know, yeah. we're going to live through this. We're going to work together on it. You just got to balance that with having way more wins and losses in the decision category. For sure. I I think about how powerful it is for a CEO to, one, say they are not prepared to make a decision, right? Not to be indecisive consistently. We don't want that. And also to come back with transparency to say, we've made the wrong choice. I I think that sets a great starting point for the culture of the company to mimic a, a similar behavior. I think what happens there is it's a level of as a CEO, you have to exhibit some level of self-confidence. If you are overly confident, people will put you in the category of arrogant. And there's a very fine line between self-confidence and arrogance. If you're arrogant, people will either, by doing nothing or working against you, make you fail. If you're self-confident, they breed off that self-confidence and they want part of it and they're going to do everything to help make you successful because they're trying to reinforce the image. I think from a cultural perspective, finding that right balance and being painfully objective about yourself, mm-hmm. I think puts you in a situation where you're going to make more good decisions and bad decisions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the CEO really is the number one culture carrier within the company, right? So all the eyes start there at that chair. It, it always does. Like the, you know, people watch the clothes you wear. They watch the car you drive. They watch how you treat staff at a restaurant. They watch, you know, where you park your car. Like, do you have executive parking or do you just park with everybody else? They pay attention to all of that, those things. To the extent that you put yourself in their shoes and are humble enough to say, hey, you know, I park in the same spot everybody else does. I think it sends a profound message. When you're at, uh, you know, a social event, not having the velvet rope where the executives are. I just don't see too much of that. You know, growing up in my career, I'd say the first 15 years, it was all about that. You know, the the whole notion of the CEO was in a different element um, than the rest of the staff. People just won't put up with that anymore, especially in tech. So I think that there's a little bit more respect for building teams and everybody being in their swim lane. I think if you are listening to those people put yourself in a situation where you walk in the cafeteria and you know don't eat at your desk every day and get down and just meet random people i think that that goes a long way as well yeah i I think so as well you've mentioned making culture like an operating metric around hiring or customer success where does that idea come from it's more or less the hr function in companies which i don't think it's leveraged as much as it should and it takes the right kind of HR professional. Like if you have the HR professional that is, you know, the union steward for the employees, that's not helpful. That's not a business-oriented head of HR. If you have somebody that doesn't think strategically about the mission of the company and how you're going to set the workforce up for success, that's not successful. But how do you measure that? I mean, there's a handful of measures that I think are important. There's no reason why you can't share your attrition metrics with your employees. I mean, if you start kicking up attrition metrics into the teens, that's a reflection on the CEO, and that's a reflection on everybody in the company. If you can't work to get onto some of the list, the best places to work, some of it is pay to play, and I think everybody understands that. But nonetheless, the amount of work it takes to get on some of those lists means that you're truly paying attention to employees and that you actually care. And then just being, to your point earlier, is just being consistent. We are not going to have an executive chef cooking, you know, um, you know, three squares a day. Um, 
in the office. We've decided that that's just not a great use of our capital. But when it comes to making sure you have the most powerful laptop to do your job, we're going to make sure you have that. When it comes to making sure that you've got best-in-class health care, we're going to do that. You know, a lot of folks uh, didn't understand, you know, at CA especially, how much health care cost us. So they look at their comp, and we would get pinged on by a lot of small companies in the Valley, especially, uh, you know, 2017, 2016 timeframe. We're paying several thousand dollars per employee in health care, where you had some of these small companies that didn't have dental, didn't have matching 401k. And so what we did is we put on a report card your total compensation. What does it cost for you to be there? And I got to tell you, a lot of employees said, oh, my goodness, I never realized that. And it just made it, you know, look like it is a good place. It's a great place to work. I like my team, and I am being compensated fairly. I think that all of those things you have to work hard at to be, you know, not necessarily best in class, but you have to be very, very good. Yeah. I love that. I wrote an article uh, when I was at Red Ventures about how you can give yourself a raise by taking advantage of 401k matching. And I think that's another example of an investment that company is willing to make that people sometimes overlook, right? They don't realize that there's a fairly significant cost to do those types of things. You know, even the employee stock purchase plan, yep. um, that's, a, that's an absolute wonderful you know, investment in yourself and investment in the company. And in every company that I've been in, anybody who's done that has made a lot of money. Plus, it makes you feel like you're really part of that ownership conversation. For sure. Yeah. You know, you're using real, your real capital. I, it's a great tax-efficient place to, to invest. And why wouldn't you want to invest in yourself and your team? You know, so much of, of each problem really is a communication problem. And you've said that a, a CEO needs to have a sophisticated, accurate, and clear communication persona. W- what does that mean to you? First of all, it comes from me being not good at it (laughs) and learning some very painful lessons early on in my career. You you really have to be very direct and very straightforward on how you communicate. If I had a dollar for every employee said, well, Mike said, (laughs) Mike didn't say most of us. (laughs) And I think if you're very clear in your communications, when they do the Mike said, it's actually what you did say. And you really do want to have that done. And you do want some followership on that. So I think it comes from internal um, that way. And then if you're a public company, you had better get very specific in everything you say and everything you write. Just simple little things. When you're doing uh, like Reg FD, for example, after you've had your sixth meeting where you've said the exact same thing over and over again and you're with a very sophisticated investor or analyst and you decide to say something off script, that is that gets an 8k written the next day <laughs> and that's embarrassing right and unfortunately it has happened to me in a press interview <laughs> and i just said oh my goodness i can't believe i i can't believe i did that and i did do it it was super embarrassing to me you got to be very careful about that and what what that incident did it was it was so humiliating to me that it just made me double down and really think through what am i saying and what am I doing? You know, as a CEO, you don't have to fill the void right. of um, everyone's waiting for you to speak. You don't have to be, you know, the center of attention. You can be a great listener and a great contributor to, to a conversation and pick and choose what you say and how you act, especially in a public forum. Yeah. There's a real power in leveraging the gravitas that the role itself carries and not weighing in on every topic, right? You really find that out as a board member. The board members that usually make a CEO roll their eyes is the board member that weighs in on every single thing that happens in the company. And you kind of feel like handing the keys to them, say, you seem to know everything. So if it's so easy, why don't you go run it? Right. Nobody likes that. The board member or the CEO that when they speak about something, it's factual. You can take it to the bank that that is true, that they've got, you know, they quote their source. Or they just say, hey, it's my opinion. I think that when you're very clear of what is real and what is opinion, I think that people appreciate that. And your life is going to be a lot easier to manage if you're very careful about the things that you opine on. Now, if you're just a bump on a log and you have no opinions, you're going to be an uninteresting person. And it's hard to get people to follow um, you if you think you're uninteresting. Very fair. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about planning. A subject that also makes your list, and and it's really about anticipating the future. So we've talked about the importance of a CEO having a vision, 
uh, communicating that vision broadly. What about the ability to predict the future? How important of a skill is this? And do you have any tips on how to improve prediction? Well, first of all, if you're in the CEO business, you are in the future business. I mean, the value of your company is based on what investors think you're going to be worth in the future. And if you can't understand that, think you're going to be a short-term CEO. So what are you listening to from your customers? Now, it's, it's, once again, it requires judgment. If you listen to customers without independent thought, I can guarantee you will go out of business. Customers will drive you out of business. Yeah. They will want features and functions in your software that nobody else will use, and you've just become their custom development shop. Yeah. And that's not your job. Your job is to write once, sell thousands and thousands of times. That's your job. And so you have to make the decision of what, are, what do people really want and just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. You have to be prescriptive on what you're building that's going to put the largest number of customers in the highest probability of their success. And you really have to think about the future. We have a perfect example of that happening right now with ChatGPT. Mm. If you were a software executive and you haven't had the curiosity to go spend several hours really Understanding how ChatGPT works, you know how to supervise and unsupervised learning work. Um, what are the different models of artificial intelligence? What are the, you know what's the difference between PTorch and what's the difference between TensorFlow? If you have not looked at any inference models, I think as a software CEO, you're going to be in big trouble because this is the same thing that happened to the CEOs that didn't understand the movement from mainframes to microcomputers, yep. from microcomputers to client-server, from client-server to SaaS. I mean, yep. we see these companies that were at the top of their game, and then within two or three short years were completely absurd. I think that that could happen and most likely will happen with some of the AI technology that's coming out. And there's so many things that you can do that really don't upset the apple cart customer service, for example. Using ChatGPT for customer service is going to make customers happier. It's going to make your employees happier. It's going to be less expensive. Yep. And why wouldn't you go get a Skunkworks project going on right now on how to delight your customers by answering their questions with artificial intelligence? To the extent that you can check your code in the productivity, there is a report that was done by Microsoft just recently one of the development teams had 100 programmers um, writing code yep. using traditional methods, and then they had another 100 engineers using AI-assisted code development. It was over a 40% improvement in productivity. Isn't that amazing? I, you know, I, I, I saw that same report, and I liken it to you know, the Industrial Revolution when we had steam power that was invented. That was a 25% improvement on productivity. And think about if, if ChatGPT is already 40% on how you can write code more efficiently, why wouldn't every company that's a software development company be using this tool? We're off on a tangent here, but it goes back to your, your rule of 40. So would you sacrifice, you know, being a rule of 38 and you put 2% of either your operating margin or your revenue um, to go invest in getting 40% savings a year from now? Right. You got to be thinking about these things. And the CEO's job is to get out ahead of these things and also bring their board along with their thinking. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, you remind me a, a bit of a story. I, when I was at AOL, we had Jack Welch join us for an offsite leadership meeting, kind of a surprise guest. And I, you know, he tells the story far better than I will, but I'll distill it down to this three things he said, which are, if you know your employees, you know your customer, and you know your cash flow, you can run an amazing business. And, you know, it's interesting how simple that sounds when someone like that, right, with, a, with interesting pedigree, brings it in. But I think it's similar to what you're saying, which is know your product, know your services, and know the landscape you're operating in, right? It's a similar parallel here. Absolutely. The technology that you have working in the markets that you're trying to serve, by definition, changes. Yeah. So why wouldn't you be interested in what those changes are? And quite frankly, can you shape those changes? Right. There, there's laws that actually protect companies from overly shaping those things. But, you know, you can't begrudge a CEO for trying to find out what people really want and giving it to them yeah. orders of magnitude better than anybody else can. Right. I mean, that is, you know, that is a very great spot 
to be in. Yep. And if you're fortunate enough to get into that kind of spot, then you can deal with the antitrust uh, uh, people that are, are, are watching out as watchdogs on all of our behalfs. But at the end of the day, I think that's kind of where you want to try to be is delight as many com- customers as possible and uh, don't take advantage of them, yep. but really find out what their needs are. Well, that's interesting. That, that leads me to a, another question here around sales, uh, which is you often hear a sales team uh, give reasons why they may have lost a deal, which are things like there was no decision or they lost their budget. You reject those out of hand. Why is that the case? You know, it's just, it's just an experience thing. The person that ran sales operations for PeopleSoft, Taleo, and CA was just a, just a great thought partner for me. We worked together at three companies very much in a peer-like fashion, deep, deep thinker. And we would constantly be pouring over sales data. And that was his job, is to you know produce the reports. And one of the things we found is actually at Taleo is I used to get so frustrated because at a smaller company, you're a little bit more gritty and every single sales matters. So you'd see on the, on the we were using salesforce.com at the time, you know, no decision. And then I see, or a budget withheld. And then I see a press release from one of our competitors like a month later, and it would just get me so fired up. I, I mean, I would get super spicy. <laughs> and, and, and what I found is it's, it's human nature. When it really comes down to it, if you have good news, you can't help but you want to tell somebody. Correct. If you have bad news, you avoid it like the plague. <laughs> and most sales professionals are pretty sophisticated, um, interpersonal relationship people and for the most part they're liked and for whatever reason they decided they don't like our product and they just don't tell they don't want to say we like somebody else better than you so they take it they take a cop out and say we're not making a decision decisions on hold and basically what it is is we're not buying your product and so what i found is not, what we did at CA is we took that in the drop-down list of status. You couldn't put that in. <laughs> and what it did is it forced that sales professional to go find out what's really happening. I'm not sure how it made me feel better. I do believe it forced everybody to have more deeper conversations. I don't know if we sold more software, but what I did understand is we got objections about the product where we wouldn't have gotten that information if we didn't force that discussion. Yeah, that's, that seems to me to be the valuable part of that feedback because if someone has a problem with your product and that's not getting surfaced back into your team, well, then you're never going to address it, right? Like how could you possibly work on something that you're unaware of? If you have the right culture, you know, salespeople don't want to lose yeah. and they feel that it's going to be a reflection on them as a sales professional right. if they if they didn't get the sale. Now, if they don't get any sales, definitely, you know, they, you know, they're probably they're probably that's a different conversation, but you know, let's have an honest conversation. And you know, it it led to some some pretty big rows between the sales force and the product people. Every CEO sees this, you know, you don't know how to sell, the product sucks. Oh my god, I've never heard that before. Let's have that conversation. Let's go tell me exactly what's wrong with this product. And We'll go we, with enough time and money. We can go fix anything. On the sales side, are you able to articulate the value proposition? Is our marketing not sufficient enough? Is the brand marketing not sufficient enough that you're not seeing enough leads? Right. So I think that there's a lot to unpack there. But if you have a legitimate um, sales pursuit and you win or lose, let's go find out why on both cases. Yep, I love that. Well, let's, let's transition to the last couple topics, which we'll, we'll do together. This is really around the fact that CEOs have to make a lot of personal sacrifices. And your last few topics are really around commitment and energy, right? How to do uh, high performance, sustained high performance. It's pretty lonely at the top, right, to be the CEO, but it can also be very rewarding and stimulating. Can you share your views on context switching between your job, your family, and yourself individually as a CEO? Yeah, I've talked about this a lot. I don't know if it's, if it makes sense to anybody else, but it kind of just it was just a framework I used for myself. You know, I have the company, you know, I have my family, and I have myself. Unfortunately, I have never been able to get all three in a good spot and stay there. One of them blows up, and basically, I always have to keep two out of three in the green zone. I can always have one kind of slipping into red. 
And what I have to do at that point is take, you know, one that's going green, you know, divert attention, yes, and, and put it to the one that, that's, that's in the red. You know, sometimes it's coming to end of quarter, and let me tell you, I'm, not, I'm missing workouts. I'm not going out to dinner with family. Yeah. I am on the road most likely, and it is company that's most important. End of year, it, it's always, you know, people look forward to Christmas. You know, Christmas and New Year's for a public CEO on a calendar quarter, it's, it's pretty tough. Especially, especially back in the perpetual days when we closed like sixty to seventy percent of our revenue in the last four or five days of the quarter. So at that point, you just have to you have to suck it up and and go make that happen. Now there's other times when I'm just burnt out. Like I mean, I'm not bringing my A game in. I haven't done anything. You know, I like to race bikes. Training plans off. I, I go to a race and get blown out of the water. I feel terrible about myself. And I just say, you know what, I got to I got to clean up my act and, you know, devote a little bit more time to that. And then secondly, you know, I got two kids that I want to be part of their life. And I've been, you know, married for 31 years. Um, the only way that that happens is you got to devote time to both of those things. And sometimes, you know, they're the most important thing in my life right now. And I just have to, to focus in on that. And the extent that you make the right decisions on where you spend your time, I think you have an opportunity for what Aristotle calls the good life, which is, you know, the good life is not winning the lottery and sitting on a beach. That's not the good life. The good life is having purpose and meaning to yourself and to others. And to the extent that you can do that, I think you're going to feel rewarded. When people stop calling you, they do it for two reasons. One, they don't think you care. Mm. Or number two, they don't think you can help. And if you're walking around on this planet where you just don't care or nobody thinks you can help, to me, that's a very empty life, and I want to be of use to other people, and I definitely care deeply about the things that I care about. Yeah, that's so well said, Mike. I really uh, re- it resonates with me so strongly. You said that micromanagement. You, you talked about this a little bit earlier. You said micromanagement is good. It, that sounds very provocative uh, when you think about the. You know, if most folks push back against micromanagement. How do, how do you mean that in the context of a CEO? You know, this is, once again, the scars on your back <laughs> teach you a lot of lessons. I had my boss at the time was Craig Conway. He was the CEO of PeopleSoft, and his office was right beside mine. I spent a lot of time with a handful of executives over, over the years trying to coach them and teach them. And Craig's opinion of this was I spent too much time doing that. Mm. What he said to me was this was in a disagreement about an employee. I thought... They were better than average and good. He thought they were below average and bad. By the way, CEOs usually win (laughs) that war. And what he said to me resonated, and it became a framework for my thinking. He said, listen, I don't pay you to teach this particular employee to do the job that I'm paying him for. Mm. I pay you to teach him how to be into the next job. Mm. And you spend all of your time trying to help him get his current job done and that stung and then I had a you know I thought about it for several days and I started looking at where what my interactions were my frustrations and he was a hundred percent correct a hundred percent correct and it really laid a framework that I'm going to coach and mentor employees for their next job but I'm not going to coach and mentor people to do the job that they've been hired to do that's table stakes. That gives you the privilege to getting time and attention and other resources of the company to to, to move your career forward. Yeah. So that was uh, that was a pretty painful painful lesson. But Pain, painful but very really powerful. Stuck. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Craig. He's, he's a very he's a very very good leader in so many different dimensions. But he was also one of the best marketers I've ever I've ever met. He could pick the four or five words that actually matter. And when you pick those four or five words that made you feel good, you felt really, really good. When you pick those four or five <laughs> words that didn't make you feel good, you felt really, really bad. He, he he's very, very powerful. At, uh, he's the guy that came up with the, the tag for PeopleSoft, no code on the client. At the time, in the ERP space, that was, that was the tagline that everybody understood exactly what that meant. Right. And everybody wanted it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, well last question here, and then uh, we'll wrap up. You created a title that I've never heard before, which is the Chief Contrarian Officer. Can you elaborate on what this title is? Yeah, this is one of those ones. That, I mean, I, 
it, it's it's super frustrating. I'll try try to be as diplomatic as I can about it. But do you ever have that person on your team that just wants to pick a fight with you over everything? Yeah, big or and small topics, correct? Whatever. Yeah, and I'm okay with that if they had original ideas of their own, but they don't. And those are the the kinds of people that I think just bring the creativity of a team down and. You know, you got to be an equal participant. You can't be the person just criticizes everybody else's idea. Yeah. You got to bring original thought and original energy to the executive table. That's why you're sitting there. And what I find is when you have that person that's just, you know, I call them Eeyore, the doom and gloom. I don't see the Eeyore job code in any of our <laughs> in any of our job, you know, prospects. And I just think that you got to move those people out of the out of the executive room. Yeah. Now, that's not to be confused with true, objective dialogue on tough topics. Yeah. You want to have an open forum. I mean, it can't be everything's you know happy and rosy all the time because it's not. Yeah. But you can't have somebody that just shoots down every idea you know, before it's had its fair share to, you know, that's the whole idea why you have an executive team. Like right. 90% of the time, the idea that first started is not the one that gets implemented because you have six or seven, eight, you know, men and women that have a set of experiences that, you know, rift off of an idea and really nurture it to getting to a place where it's actionable and higher probability of success. Yeah. When you have somebody shooting something down, you know, right off the bat before there's any discussion um, and never brings any original thought to the table. Yeah. That's not that's not being an executive, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I, maybe I'm more familiar with this title than I thought. I often just call those people brilliant jerks because they actually tend to be very smart, right? Because they can have the debate with you, uh, yet they're they're really just negative and they kind of drain the energy out of the room. Yeah, it's just not helpful. I mean, especially in software and software development. Like, let's face it, we charge people a king's ransom for something they can't touch, right. feel, smell, and you know they hope it works. Right. It requires an incredible amount of creativity to come up with the idea of what needs to be built, yeah. and then. The ability of getting something from idea into enterprise quality productivity is a very, very difficult thing to do. Agreed. And you want somebody that's talking about what, why, why can't we, not why shouldn't we. That's right. That's right. Well, Mike, thank you so much for sharing these valuable insights for, for CEOs. I think it, and, and one of the things that I take away from this is so much of what we talked about isn't just specific to the CEO role, of course, and that all of us can benefit from these tips no matter what our, our ultimate title is. Uh, but thank you for sharing your, your time today and these tips. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Great, James. It was a real pleasure. All right. Take care. 